You're listening to the Writing Momentum Podcast with authors Christopher and Gina Mazzelli, where you'll discover more about writing, publishing, building your author brand, and selling your book. Now, here's your hosts, Chris and Gina. Hi, and welcome to the Writing Momentum Podcast. I'm Gina Maselli, and I'm here with my husband, Christopher Maselli. Hey, so good to see y'all. Yeah, we are super excited because we have one of our favorite writers joining us today. We have an interview today with Melanie Henry. She is an award-winning author of more than 60 books, and many of them are ghostwritten, so she spends a lot of time with helping other people get their message out. And her book that she's probably best known for I guess for now, is the Jerry Falwell, His Life and Legacy. But she's also the award-winning author who has written for Guideposts and has won their prestigious writing award and their annual contest, as well as she has written for Reader's Digest and Believer's Voice of Victory magazine. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for coming. Welcome, welcome. I'll tell you, I'm looking forward to it because last time you were here, we talked about interviewing and it was such a rich interview, so deep in depth. And uh, so it's just, it's always good to talk to you. And today we are talking about another topic that Melanie and I have talked about before. And I think this is so good. I really wanted to have her on here to hear her speak about this. And this is about the first chapter of a nonfiction book. That chapter is so important. And Melanie, you tell us from your perspective, why is that chapter so important? Mm -hmm. There's so many things that have to happen in the first chapter of a book for the reader to keep reading or want to know what happens next. And if you don't do that, I think a lot of new writers are not understanding how to do that first chapter and then they lose the reader. Doesn't mean the book won't be sold because there are books being sold by good writers that doesn't mean they're being read. It doesn't yeah, right. write way yeah. through the chapter one and start on chapter two and keep going. But I always think of this book as a pyramid and that chapter one is the foundation of the whole thing. And you've got to get a lot of things done in there. I would say that the thing that I see most often that's wrong is that a writer will think, what do I want to write about? I think I'll write about this. And they're basing it on what they want to write about, not basing it on the need of the reader. Because while that's got to be established in chapter one, what I feel like has happened is things changed with social media. You can no longer write long sentences. You can no longer write long paragraphs because they're not going to read them. Like I mm-hmm. said, it might help, but it's just not going to happen anymore. But what seems to be thrown out along there some way is putting a premise in a book. Remember that old thing we learned in school about writing? a. We still got to do that. Social media did not change that you need a premise for your But if you look at the things that need to be established in chapter one, you've got to answer the basic question. Who, what, when, where, and why? That still has to happen. And somewhere in chapter one, you've got to get the reader to care about what's happening in this book. Because if they don't care, they're not going to stick with it. You've got to set the tone for the book, which we'll go into. 
You've got to set the mood for the book. You've got to provide a platform and establish credibility for somebody that's reading, for whoever wrote the book. You've got to make a nonverbal contract with the reader that you're going to solve the story problem if they will finish the reading the book. And you've got to establish that premise, and then you've got to make them so interested they want to turn the page to chapter two. Yeah, yeah. What to accomplish. It really is. It is. And I feel guilty of this myself where I wondered, is it because I'm getting older because times have changed or whatever, but I will pick up books. And as much as I love reading, there's many times if those, especially nonfiction books, if they don't capture my attention in that first chapter, it's okay. I don't want to spend another 14 hours reading this book. I'm going to move on to something else. But there is a definite something, and we can get into that even more here, that's in the books that work, that capture your attention that make you go, okay, I'm going to keep going on with this because this is right where I met. This is what I need to know the answer <laughs> to what they promised there in the beginning, as opposed to just feeling so you're just laying something out here and I just have to go with you for the ride. And sometimes I just don't feel like I have the time for it. I think there's definitely, and we've talked about that on this podcast before, that people sometimes they don't know who their reader is or what that felt need of that person is. And so they just scattershot it. And they throw everything against the wall. They want to talk about this topic, but instead of really narrowing down who it is they're talking to and what the core message that they're trying to get across, they do the scattershot thing. And I know all of us have probably read books where you just don't even know where it's going or who it's written for because the person didn't do some of that work ahead of time. So can you think of, I'm putting you on the spot here, but can you think of an example of a felt need that is clearly defined so that someone might keep reading? Okay. Let's talk about that for a minute because years ago, I wrote a book for a pastor. I was, he had multiple ghostwriters at the time and he assigned me to write his book on fatherhood. And it was like a 12 or 15 set CD series of it preached. Now, his premise was that fatherlessness is the cause of all ills in society. Okay, he had a lot of supporting scripture, but we both know there is not one scripture that says, yeah, fatherlessness is the cause of all the ills. Right. Right. Whoever was doing the book on motherhood, they just took his transcript and laid it down and tried to pretend it was a book. It took me much longer because I won't go past chapter one until I've got that nailed. How are you going to do it? If I don't, it's a Christian book and I don't have a scripture to stand on. I thought I've got to do research in society and see what society says about that. Now, do you care if I just read a little bit about that first chapter? No, go for sure, it. Go for it. Okay. Well, let me just say that this was written back before social media and the sentences are too long. We'd never write them this long today. So on the first chapter, knowing what all had to be done, this is how I started. This was, by the way, not too long after Katrina. Blistering sun shimmered off the water that flooded New Orleans in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. It was an eerie sight as choppers circled overhead, looking for survivors. The word help was spelled out on one roof. The rest of the house was underwater. 
Bloated bodies floated in the floodwaters of a city which once vibrated with life. Survivors climbed to the highest point in hopes of rescue. These are the effects of a natural disaster. Sniper fire drove away the rescue team attempting to evacuate the charity hospital. As a result, more people died. Teenage boys traveled in packs, preying on hopeless people. Officials from the Federal Emergency Management Agency suspended rescue efforts in parts of New Orleans where relief workers met violence. Up to eight gun stores were looted. The guns and ammunition were turned on survivors and rescue workers. Smoke and fire swirled above the water as arsonists set parts of the city ablaze. These are the effects of a human disaster. Why would people prey on helpless, homeless survivors of a tragedy like the one that hit New Orleans? The answer, of course, is that those people need God. But that wasn't the only answer. Many of the people in New Orleans who weren't Christian risked their lives to save other people. They gave up their bread and water for the young, the old, and the lame. So what went wrong in the internal wiring of those who shot at rescue workers attempting to evacuate dying people from Charity Hospital? Strange as it may seem, we get a glimpse of the answer in Africa. At the Pillensburg Reserve Park in South Africa, teenage elephants, usually docile, went on a reign of terror. In 1993, one young elephant killed two people. A year later, young male elephants killed 21 white rhinos. Two years later, another 20 rhinos were killed. In 1997, a young male elephant was caught in the act of killing a rhino. What happened to change these usually docile animals into killers? 18 elephants had been orphaned and were released into the park in 1980. They had no adult role models, male or female. And within two years, the aggressive destruction behavior had begun. Adult females were released into the park, but the behavior not only continued, it worsened. Elephant behaviorists then introduced six mature male bull elephants into the reserve. Once each of those six bulls had encountered every elephant in the park, the killings stopped and the behavior changed. So from there, I won't read the whole chapter, but from there, I went through lots of research, just making my point so clear. For instance, let me see. In one study, 85% of children who exhibit behavior disorders are from fatherless homes. 85% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youths in prison come from fatherless homes. So I just took this chapter and I hit mm. the re- Hard. Now, what we've said you've got to do in the first chapter also is establish your contract with the reader. Now, normally, the contract is unspoken, even in guidepost story. You establish your unspoken contract with the reader. It used to be in the first paragraph, but now that the first paragraphs are so tiny, I may not get to until the third paragraph. But your story problem is an unspoken promise that by the end of the story, you will show 
how this can be solved, right? With this premise being what it was, that I needed to actually make this promise not unspoken, but spoken. So let me tell you how I ended that chapter. Once you grab hold of a principle of God, it's like finding a vein of gold. You want to keep right on digging. Fatherhood is a vein of gold that God has given to the body of Christ. It may be the single area that the devil has fought for more than any other in our lives. The devil wants our children, our families, and our destinies. But he's not going to get them because I'm going to teach you God's equation. That's so good. Good. See that yeah. it does. It, it mm-hmm. makes you go, how can I not turn the page to chapter two? Because you're convinced of this is the problem. This is exactly what I was looking to find the answer for. And you're going to show it to yeah. me now. I've called it before casting the vision. When you're talking in the first chapter, you talk about having that contract. I don't know why I came up with that or heard it or whatever, but it's that casting the vision for where are you going to take the reader by the end of the book. I love that. Yeah. I love and that. He had been put out with me because it took me a long time to get chapter one figured out. book went pretty good afterwards. But when I sent it to him, he called me and he said, no one else will ever write for me again. He never knew what goes in the first chapter. He yeah. never knew that I established a platform for him, that I set up a premise that they could not ignore. But he, all he knew was that I did a really good job. Yeah, yeah. And we talk about that, too, because you also established his authority. And like you said, he's a pastor, so you could have pulled from Scripture. But because there isn't a succinct Scripture that outlined his premise. I love that you were still pulling from those. You're pulling from the society. So you're bringing that evidence from the society to bring it in. I would think even if there was a scripture that was succinct and said that, having all of the statistics and the real life, here's what we see and support that scripture would, it just continues to make the case. And it's just, it makes it so much more compelling rather than just rather than just a single scripture. And that's powerful. Look, of course, I brought in scriptures to support yeah, it. Sure. The premise had to be really nailed in that first chapter, especially when we didn't have a clear one supported one scripture that everything could stand on. And also you used the power of story in that first chapter as well. So it wasn't just that you were preaching at the reader. You're right. actually letting the reader, you're guiding the reader toward that conclusion with these stories. Mm -hmm. It's so powerful too. I always like to begin every chapter, even in a teaching book, with scenes, story, that's going to depict what I'm showing in that chapter. I think so too, because I think people love that. They, They get caught up in the story. They just get caught up in it. And I know Chris and I worked on a book a few years ago where it was actually a therapist who was saying that with story, that story gets beyond our initial mental blocks. Story goes it, deeper. It breaks in, down the walls, I guess, that we might put up between us and whatever we're reading. And whatever is being taught to us. So if we're being taught, we might automatically have this idea of, no, that's not right, or we might want to combat it. But when we hear those stories, the stories go deeper. They automatically go deeper. I want to just touch on one thing you said earlier, Gina, and that is that we didn't preach in that chapter. I think another thing is people want to go to church and hear a sermon. They don't want to be preached at in a book. 
big mistake mm-hmm. new rags make mm-hmm. is trying yes. to do that. Doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work. Exactly. Definitely. So some other things that have to be done. I said who, what, where, when, and why. You also just set the tone of your book and you want it to be very conversational. For instance, okay, this is a true story, a nonfiction book called Out of the Depths. It's a rabbi in Israel who wrote a book about his experiences. And I want to read you first two sentences. My father standing at the deportation point. That is the first childhood memory engraved in my mind. It is the image that accompanies me wherever I go. It is the autumn of 1942. I am five years old, short, and terrified. Now, so two sentences. He set the time, place, and he set the mood. Here's what. This is fiction, but I think it does a great job of setting a mood. This is Janet Ivanovich. In my mind, my kitchen is filled with crackers and cheese, roast chicken, leftovers, farm fresh eggs, and coffee beans ready to grind. The reality is that I keep my Smith & Wesson in the cookie jar, my Oreos in the microwave, a jar of peanut butter and a hamster food in the over-the-counter cupboard. I have beer and olives in the refrigerator. I used to have a birthday cake in the freezer for emergencies, but I, I love that. that graph that sets a mood and makes you yeah. laugh. So how you write that lead in that first chapter is going to set the mood for what you want to share in the book. Mm-hmm. And another thing you have to do is you need to set the platform. This pastor on this book that I wrote on fatherhood had a huge church in Philadelphia, and he had a big TV program. But here's what I know. The people reading that book would be all over America and all over the world, and they weren't going to be limited to that. And you can't, you have a certain authority when you step up to a pulpit. So I had to, in that first chapter, give him the credibility. So if they had never heard his name before, they believe he knew that what he was talking about. So that establishing the platform. And then we always already talked about making that contract with the reader. But I really think that the biggest thing of all of it is establishing that premise. I see a lot of books coming out. They have no premise. Just got left out. And can you talk just quickly about this? Because I know we've talked about this and your process for coming up with that, narrowing down that premise. You have a specific process that you go through for that, which is so helpful. I really think that it is different on every book, but just like I did on this book, I realized, and I will say this as a ghostwriter, you may be given 15, 20 sermons. First chapter is usually not in there because you don't have to do all the things that are required in a first chapter in a sermon. So almost no matter what the book is, I have to write a first chapter that does what that book's going to need. But on this one, I just realized I was going to have to go to society for research. You just have to figure out what problem is this book going to solve for the reader and how to set that up in the first chapter that we make that clear that this is what's going on in your life that this book can help. So you really have to dig in generally and do research because, like I said, the books that I write for pastors 
They generally don't have that. Occasionally, somewhere through the sermon, there might be some stories that can go in the first chapter, but yeah. generally the first chapter information isn't there. So I always try to narrow down what is the real story problem and what is the reader going to get out of this? And that's the premise you're going to establish in that first chapter. That's so good. Really good. Once again, talking to Melanie Hemery here, and I just wanted to take notes the whole time. I'm going to have to listen yeah. to this. Again. <laughs> so. It's really good. Thank you so much. I really do believe that the first chapter is what is keeping a lot of books from selling. And the rest of it may be great, but if you haven't done your work in the first chapter, it really hurts people from understanding, what am I going to get out of this? Because if I'm going to get so many hours of my life to reading this book, what what for? Yeah. And I imagine that first chapter also has to make good on the promise of the title of the book, right? Because we're all downloading our books now. So a lot of times if you're looking for a certain subject like the fatherlessness or something like that, you might, something about that title might've caught your eye. You're going to download it. You're going to grab it off a bookshelf. And then you've got one chapter to make good on the promise of what that title is and get that reader completely just hooked on what you're writing. This is a little rabbit trail, but the interview I did was about a man who had been homeless on the street, a drug addict. But when I was contacting him to try to set up an interview, he's flying all over Africa. So I said, what were you thinking in Africa? And he goes, oh, we're setting up our programs to help the problem of fatherlessness like we do in the United States and Africa. Wow. Wow. How cool is that? What a legacy. Yes, yes. Thank Beautiful you, thing. Melanie, for joining us again and talking to us about first chapters. Like I said, I'm going to go back and listen to this one again for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share it with someone who's writing their nonfiction book. I really encourage you to check that out. And if you missed our interview with Melanie on interviewing, I encourage you to go back and listen to that as well. Because if you're writing nonfiction books and you're needing to get some social proof from other people and hear their stories and bring those in, she's got some really great insight on that topic as well. Yeah. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining us, Melanie. Hey, you know, we're all not in this alone. That's right. <laughs> That's why we do this kind of thing. And yeah. don't forget that together... We have writing momentum. You've been listening to the Writing Momentum Podcast with authors Christopher and Gina Maselli. Don't forget to subscribe and get the show notes at writingmomentum.com backslash podcast. Until next time, we hope that you have writing momentum. momentum.